First Samuel chapter one. I want to read the first chapter and the first half of chapter 2 with you. Though we are here in an historical account of a family in the life of ancient Israel, these verses that I'm reading for you in chapter 1 and the first half of chapter 2 are almost a sermon, and I'll let the text unfold. When I'm done reading, we'll gather these verses, this chapter and a half, into three sections and make some observations and application about peace and how moms can enjoy the Lord's peace in parenting. 1 Samuel 1. There was a man from Ramayoth Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim, his name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, the first named Hannah, the second Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. Whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to each of her sons and daughters. But he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Whenever she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way every year. Hannah wept and would not eat. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband Elkanah asked. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's tabernacle. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord, 
and wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of hosts, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me, and give your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and his hair will never be cut. While she was praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her lips. Hannah was speaking to herself, and although her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. Eli thought she was drunk and scolded her. How long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. No, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've, I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. Eli responded, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant the petition you've requested from him. May your servant find favor with you, she replied. And Hannah went on her way. She ate and no longer appeared downcast. The next morning, Elkanah and Hannah got up early to bow to worship the Lord. Afterwards, they returned home to Ramah. And Elkanah was intimate with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. After some time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel because she said, I requested him from the Lord. When Elkanah and all his household went up to make the annual sacrifice and his vow offering to the Lord, Hannah did not go and explain to her husband, after the child is weaned, I'll take him to appear in the Lord's presence and to stay there permanently. Her husband Elkanah replied, Do what you think is best and stay here until you've weaned him. May the Lord confirm your word. So Hannah stayed there and nursed her son until she weaned him. When she had weaned him, she took him with her to Shiloh, as well as a three-year-old bull, two and one-half gallons of flour, and a jar of wine. Though the boy was still young, she took him to the Lord's house at Shiloh. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. Please, my Lord, she said, as sure as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this boy, and since the Lord gave me what I asked him for, I now give the boy to the Lord. For as long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. Then he bowed and worshiped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies. Because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. And there is no rock like our God. 
Do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and actions are weighed by him. The bows of the warriors are broken, but the feeble are clothed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are starving hunger no more. The barren woman gives birth to seven, but the woman with many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some to Sheol. He raises others up. The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the garbage pile. He seats them with noblemen and gives them a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world on them. He guards the steps of his faithful ones, but the wicked are silenced in darkness. For a man does not prevail by his own strength. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy served the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Would you pray with me? Lord, let your word unfold and provide great encouragement and peace in all of its fullness to moms and all of us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. As Pastor Jared mentioned, we are here today thinking about moms. Mother's Day, we've been going through the book of Revelation for a few months now, and we are in chapter 8, pausing that as we do at the holidays and various uh, holidays throughout the year to think about that specific moment in the calendar. But what we're going to see today, even here in 1 Samuel, even thinking about Mother's Day, are points of contact even with Revelation that we'll, we'll unpack along the way. But if you're a guest with us, it is great to have you with us as we think about moms. And moms, we want to honor you today and recognize all of your work and recognize that for moms across the ages and even in our contemporary world here, 2023, in Kansas City, in the United States, if we ask moms what they need, what they really want, many moms will say, I want, I want peace in my heart. I need a sense of peace, a sense of wholeness, and we'll be thinking about that today and how moms today can enjoy the Lord's peace in parenting. This is a term that even Eli uses, and we'll be unpacking this as we think about the flow of these chapters and three ideas. I want us to notice first, again, we've read it, but I want us to gather up Hannah's need and her emotional turmoil and her asking of the Lord for a child. And then I want us to think about the gift of this child and the, the Lord gives her a child and, and she gives this child back to the Lord on loan. But the language that she uses 
goes far beyond just a personal relationship with this child that she has born. The language that she uses goes far beyond just her own family and its structure. You caught this by the end of her poem that we read in chapter 2. She mentions a king. Why speak about a king here? The Lord's going to strengthen his king. Why does she use language like a horn of salvation? And what does that signify for her, for people at her time of life? Why does she mention this Lord thundering in the heavens? Something we've thought about even in Revelation just last week as a concept of holy war. We're going to be synthesizing some of these ideas today. And from this, recognizing that moms can enjoy peace by remembering God's broader redemptive plans and walking in those, taking the patterns of life that God has given in His Word in instructing us, holding those patterns of life as we steward children in accord with His broader redemptive plans. These ideas will, in time, provide a sense of peace. There are ups and downs, but there's a structure in place for us. Notice with me in the text, Hannah begging God for a son. And this begging, one of the, if you're a younger person here, maybe you're newer to Christianity, one of the features of the Bible that I think really confirms its truthfulness is how real it is in terms of dealing with human emotion. And if you have, if some of you ladies, even, even in the sound of my voice today, you may not have children and want them, or you have children now and at one time in your life didn't but wanted them, when you read the first two-thirds of 1 Samuel 1 and the emotive language, isn't that what is in your heart now or was in your heart? I have known women who've wanted to have children and just couldn't have children. And the strength of emotion that they felt is right here in what Hannah says. Friends, for, for thinking about the Bible, one of the ways it confirms its truthfulness is the way it speaks about human emotion and how we feel. And right here, Hannah is a witness of that. But this feeling that Hannah has is not just in the sense of, of a woman wanting to have a child and not able to. There are two features in Hannah's life that need to rise to the surface for us as we think about these first 18 verses. One is the framework in Hannah's mind that children she knows are from the Lord, but beyond that, children confirm God's blessing. In, in Hannah's mindset, in the history of, of Israel, it's the gift of children from God that confirm His blessing. It's not just a, a general kind of blessing. It's a, it's, this is my personal blessing upon you. And your people, especially for Israel and their prosperity and their growth. But second, Penina. We don't get 
through the first paragraph of this unit of text without this mention of Penina. And notice in verse 2, Penina had children, but Hannah was childless. This framework further punctuates the degree of pain that Hannah feels. It's not just that she wants children and can't. That's common even today. Can't have children. I want them so much. I want that fulfillment as a mom. I want to, I want to rear a child up. For Hannah, the problem is in terms of God's personal blessing, but further, this rival, Penina, taunts her because Penina is, is fertile. Hannah is not. Even though, verse 5, even though her husband was sensitive to her, notice verse 5, even though Elkanah did what? Double portion. Even though he obviously loved her more than Penina, and, and he loved her in a compassionate sense, he loved her even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Verse 6, her rival would taunt her. Notice the language, the number in verse 6, her rival. It's singular. It's one person who's taunting her. It's just Penina. But you, you know that sometimes it's just one, one human enemy. It doesn't take a whole army. Just one can cause a great deal of emotional pain, especially if it's directed at you in your weakness. This is the very realness of the Bible. Her rival would taunt her just to provoke her. Verse 6, it was all for sport. She didn't need to act this way. Verse 7, whenever she got to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her. Do you notice the language here in a succession of verses? Taunt, taunt, taunt. And every taunt is more pain. <clears throat> the pain is there already because the desire is unfulfilled. The pain is further accentuated by the fact that she's an Israelite and God gives blessing of children for faithfulness. But further, this rival is taunting her. Do you see how this is all stacking up? And shows she's weeping. Verse 7 at the end. And we, we've read here she makes her vow. This vow that she makes to give this child back, she asks the Lord and she vows to give this child back. This Lord of hosts language. This Lord of hosts, some translations will bring together this militaristic imagery, the Lord of armies, a, a heavenly host, that God is the ruler over all spheres, over the entire cosmos, and angelic forces are at his bidding, and he is described as a warrior throughout the, the Bible. In here, Lord of hosts, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, she calls on God's omnipotence to remember her and help her to conceive, and give your servant a son. I'll give him back. Hannah is asking, and she's going to give back. She's going to receive and give back. If, if we receive something and give it back, what do we commonly call that? A loan. We, we have our, we're stewards of something. It's not ours. 
We, we are receivers, and if we're going to give it back, there's a temporal framework involved. There's a day of reception and a day of release. Mine now, for a time, given away. That's the framework. Verses 12 through 16, in some ways, are superfluous. They, they add a specific note with Eli, the priest, that's going to be unpacked further. But there's another sense in which we could just jump right to verse 17 and, and a priestly blessing on someone who's in need. But this further accentuates Hannah's brokenness. Not only is she taunted by her rival, despite the fact that she's already down, despite the fact that she's an Israelite and hasn't conceived, and that may be looked upon as unfaithfulness, all these kinds of social and personal problems that are accentuated here even further. The priest, the spiritual leader, thinks she's drunk. And she's actually so engaged, she's just praying to herself, her lips are moving. <clears throat> And she confesses, verse 15, I'm a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I'm pouring out my heart to the Lord. So real is Hannah's pain. Exactly consistent with what many women feel in the throes of family life and wanting to have children. Notice the end of verse 16. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. She is honest with how her feelings are overwhelming her. Isn't this the truthfulness of the Bible? It's exactly how women feel at times. All of us, so real with human emotion. And Eli's response provides somewhat of a framework for what we're thinking about today. Notice what he says. Go in peace. The concept of peace across the Bible can be traced in, in, in various situations where it's used, uh, nuanced here and there, but it often has this idea of wholeness, fulfillment, the receiving of desire with a recognition of God in prayer context. If, if peace and prayer go together, it's wholeness and fulfillment from God. This is, may God grant you what you want and may you recognize it is from God. Though the concept of peace can come in other contexts as well, apart from just prayer. But when prayer is involved with peace, it's often this sense of God giving you what you're asking for so that there's fulfillment and wholeness because the praying signifies deficiency. May God meet the need. May he grant your request. That's, that's the idea. May God give you. And in this sense, peace, though, we're going to find extends beyond just this personal, just God give a child and move on. It's, it's much bigger than that, and we're going to unpack that as, as we progress. One way to think about peace is this. You can think about, we're, we're here at Mother's Day, and you may have some Mother's Day traditions that you do. Maybe it's a special meal, a set of activities, holidays. One of the traditions that, that we do 
around holidays, not here at Mother's Day, but around holidays at Christmas time, we'll do puzzles. This puzzle, we set it out at Thanksgiving and it goes all the way through. It takes forever. It's just on the table. It, somebody walks by, tries to find a piece. But one of the strategies is to get a framework all the way around so that we can begin to put pieces in it. And those, those pieces, when all the pieces are in, there's peace with the puzzle. You can use that piece and pieces idea. That puzzle is at peace when all the pieces are there. The framework and everything filled in. For Hannah, there's a structure. It's her body. She's a woman. She's an Israelite. The problem's with her, obviously, because her husband and other wife, they're conceiving. Peace is having a child here. Well, the story progresses. She receives this child from the Lord. Verses 19 and, and following, and, and verse 20 here, she conceives, and she names the boy, verse 20, Samuel, because she, she said, I requested him from the Lord. The, the name of Samuel has this idea of asking as, as a verb, uh, to, to ask. That's the general kind of meaning. And she names him accordingly. She asked, and so she names him. In English, we would say, asked one. <laughs> I ask, I'm going to call you asked one. She names him appropriate to his name. But she wants to wait to give him until he's weaned to make sure he is able physically on his own to fulfill the vow that she has made. And verses 23 and 24 give us a sense of anticipation as they approach verse 25 and the sacrifice and the boy coming there to Eli in Shiloh in verse 26, at the place of worship for Israel. Verses 26 through 28 are worth our attention. Please, my Lord, as sure as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this boy, and now in verses 27 and 28, this language of asking and receiving is going to be picked up in different ways. And, and the idea is she asked and received, and because she's giving back, she understands that this child really is on loan. Some of your translations have that kind of an idea. Lent, the Lord lent this boy to me. To ask, to receive, to release means there's a loan involved. Only for a time is this mine, this one. I prayed for this boy, verse 27, and since the Lord gave me what I asked him for, I now give the boy to the Lord. This asked one is now released. This received one is given back. As long as he lives, he is given to the Lord And he bowed and worshiped there. Eli likely with 
Hannah, perhaps Elkanah beside, Eli worshiping in response. It's stewardship. That's the the language here. And this fits exactly with the concept of parenting, doesn't it? Children are on loan. The longer I am a parent, the more I'm aware of this this very fact. We, We receive children on a certain date and we release them. And when they are released from our home, the stewardship changes. There always are children, but the stewardship's different. While they are here, Lord, they're ours. And we're going to unpack this concept of peace and how we can enjoy peace as we progress. But before we do that, we need to pause to recognize that Hannah and her story here in in 1 Samuel 1 to 2 does not offer us just a framework for individual moms to have peace in parenting. It certainly provides some encouragement. I trust, ladies, you're encouraged even today just from the emotional language of chapter 1 and guys as well, all of us, the, the, the very realness with which the text articulates the situation and how Hannah feels social relationships involved. But this passage is not just about that. It is not just about, in Hannah's grid, principles for honoring your your family and your children as a steward. I've hinted at those ideas, and it's true, but it's more than that. Here's why. This is why it gets important. If we're thinking about chapter 1, we must think about chapter 2. Because what Hannah states in chapter 2 is how you can have peace as a mom. And I do not think you can have peace as a mom apart from employing the principles that are stated in chapter 2. I do not think you can have peace as a Christian mom just on your own, just recognizing stewardship. I think you have to embrace the broader purposes of God in His redemptive plans because He is the God who is the Lord of hosts, whom Hannah prayed to. He is the God who has greater interest in human beings than even the human beings you've reared, those you are bringing up, those who have your name. He has a greater interest in them because of His redemptive purposes in Hannah's grid to have a child is to be blessed of God and to to confirm His blessing. But in her grid, it's also the case that Eve sinned and Adam. And the result of that sin is death. But in Genesis 3, there's a promise of one coming who would come to crush the serpent's head. Satan would bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And from that perspective, we can move through Scripture to passages like Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him, God the Son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels who you rule over as your warriors. You are interested in humanity because it's these image bearers 
you redeem and will redeem through Jesus Christ. And in that redemption, you show your supremacy and greatness. So children are a heritage from the Lord more than just for the sake of my personal blessing and my family. God is interested here. These children bear his image, and as he redeems them, he plunders Satan's kingdom. Mine, this one's mine, this one's mine. I'm doing what no one else can do. God the Redeemer, God who sends his spirit to give new life, God who redeems through the king who would come. That is what Hannah participates in and contributes to, and that's her grid. That's what ultimately gives her peace. And we see that through some of this militaristic imagery. I noted in chapter 1, how many enemies did Hannah have? <laughs> I'm just doing the math here. It's like one, Penina. Notice the text, chapter 2. God has a bigger redemptive plan. My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies. Suddenly, there's a whole army involved here. I rejoice in your salvation and in, in deliverance. That concept of salvation, like the concept of peace, can flex here and there, but it has often a, a similar uh, framework in terms of deliverance, in terms of an out of problem into solution, and that for a time. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you, and there is no rock like our God. She recall if she's talking about rock imagery, we can go back to Exodus chapter 15 and Song of Moses, even. The Lord is a rock of salvation. And this rock, this stable force, this holy one, and he's a fighter. The bows of the warriors are broken. God breaks them. Feeble are clothed with strength. Hannah goes on in verses 5 and 5 through, through 8 in just this reversal of fortunes over and over again. There's this situation, and by all principles of human understanding, that would seem to be successful. But the Lord destroys, and he inverts the situation. The full hire themselves out, verse 5. Those who are starving, they hunger no more. Verse 5, the barren woman gives birth to seven, but the woman with many sons pines away. A dig back at, at Penina, now Hannah exalted. And she is recognizing that this child is going to participate in all that God's doing. Indeed, his rule over creation is in view. Notice verse 8. The foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Foundations of the earth is a concept we've thought about in Revelation. The earth quakes when the Lord enters the scene, when he acts for judgment or deliverance. It's God who guards the steps of his faithful ones, the wicked are silenced in darkness, for a man does not prevail by his own strength. Those who oppose the Lord, verse 10, they'll be shattered because he thunders in the heavens against them. God is presented in 1 Samuel 2 as this warrior 
who's involved in a cosmic battle to glorify himself through his people Israel, Hannah is one of them and recognizes that this child is for her and for God, for his redemptive purposes. And on loan, she's given him back for those ends. That's the imagery used. This all comes to a climax in verse 10. Notice the language that Hannah uses far beyond just, just her son. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. She, brothers and sisters, she, she has in view with her child one side of a coin and the back side is God's redemptive plans, even judgment. This child is confirming to me, in some ways against Benina, but much more so, this is about God. This is about his redemptive work. He'll judge the ends of the earth. And notice, he will give power to his king. Friends, this is out of the blue. In the immediate flow of 1 Samuel 1 to 2, but on Hannah's mind is an understanding of God's promises, of her situation at this time in history, and prophetically speaks of her son's role in anointing a specific king and not just any specific named king, the great King David, whose son will be ultimately Jesus family line. This is where Hannah and her song becomes prophetic. God will give power to his king through Samuel who anoints David and we enjoy the greater David. That's the redemptive grid. When we think about the way that the Old Testament unfolds into the new and one David to the greater David. We think of passages like Luke chapter 1. When the angel speaks to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you'll call his name Jesus. He will be great and he'll be called the son of the most high for the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Hannah's perspective is much more than just having a child and personal fulfillment. It is about God's redemptive plan, and that, ladies, is what will give you peace. I noted that we'll be partaking of the Lord's Supper today and I want to pause us for a moment. Here is my Bible's open to Luke chapter 1. And if you would grab the elements to think about Hannah's son Hannah's prophecy that the Lord will strengthen his king. And he did. He strengthened David. 
And from David's line, Jesus. The great king, the final king, our king. The king who laid down his life for the forgiveness of sin. The king who established the kingdom of God in the sense of fulfillment and pleasure. Today, we hold this cracker that represents Jesus' broken body, the king broken for us, raised victorious. Let's eat in remembrance of him. you would open up the foil the two elements of the Lord's Supper the cracker or bread and the juice remind us of the physical nature of Jesus body and blood both symbolic a sacrifice and a covering this is where forgiveness of sin is found. This is where the real victory is in what Jesus did for us. Hannah saw it in a shadowy way from a distance and spoke of it. We know it in reality. In Jesus laying down his life and taking it up. Forgiveness of sin in his blood. Let's drink in remembrance. <coughs> Well, what does all of this mean for you, Mom? What does all this mean for you then? I said earlier that Eli's statement to Hannah, may the Lord give you peace, in some ways becomes a framework for what we're thinking about here today. It means this. It means the battle's still going on, and you are at war. It means that Hannah describes herself as a woman, an individual in the midst of pain and seeking God and asking for Him and receiving on loan and giving back to God. And in her description of giving back to God, she articulates the broader framework of God's redemptive plans. And those redemptive plans are described in a militaristic imagery that there's this battle going on. Here is the point, ladies, for you. To enjoy peace is to recognize and embrace the larger battle that God is engaged in even over the battle of your own life. It's not to run from the fight but to embrace your role as a participant in God's redemptive battle, to glorify himself by redeeming people, and that is what will give you peace as you embrace those roles. Not minimizing, not neglecting personal roles, in no way just completely 
thinking nothing of yourself at all, but recognizing that your role as a mom, likely a wife as well, is not the end of your purposes. It's much more about God and his redemptive work. There's a bigger plan. I want to set out two ideas here in terms of peace for you and patterns, two patterns that are going to help you enjoy peace. Two patterns that are going to help you. One I've touched on already and another specifically unpacked. The first is this, just a pattern of thought. So many of the peace attacks that happen in your life happen in your mind. There are patterns of thought that can help you to have peace in, in your mind. And those patterns of thought are recognizing God's redemptive purposes for you. And it's like you're in a war. I recently read an account of a a former Navy SEAL who's actually recently been killed. Daniel Swift was his name. He went AWOL just in the last year. He was a Navy SEAL, retired, came back, was really struggling with family life in so many ways. Domestic abuse charges had come. It was just his life was, was very much post-traumatic soldier stress. He recently died fighting alongside Ukraine against Russia. Uh, Daniel Swift left his family, somehow got to the Ukrainian side, showed his strength as a soldier. He'd been deployed multiple times as a Navy SEAL, someone who was decorated and strong, well-trained. One of the people who had fought alongside Mr. Swift in his tours of duty as a Navy SEAL said this, a lot of people, quote, don't admit it, but lots of people are here, another soldier who defected to go fight with Ukraine, a former American soldier, lots of people are here because war is fun. War is easy in many ways. Your mission is crystal clear. You're here to take the enemy out. For many soldiers, nothing in life makes sense but fighting. In some ways, ladies, you taking up that mindset about God's redemptive plan and embracing it will bring you peace. Hopefully it's the case that nothing else makes sense except fighting God's battle as one carrying on his redemptive purposes while you have children with you. And, and those patterns of thought, I am going to embrace God's redemptive plan in Christ and my children sharing the gospel with them, following on. It's this pattern of thought that this is a battle and I'm going to embrace it. First, patterns of thought. Second, patterns of activity. This is what will bring peace. 
I'm going to embrace this redemptive plan that God is interested in image bearers. He's interested in these children much more than I am. He is the God who is the heavenly warrior who sent Jesus Christ to plunder Satan's kingdom here. By his spirit, he gives them new life. I'm going to think that way. That's going to be my pattern of thought. That's where I'm going to have peace. I'm not going to have peace just in my children and my own life. I won't have peace there. I'm going to embrace God's plan. Second, patterns of activity. And those patterns of activity, I suggest, would come from passages like 1 Timothy 5, 9 to 10. It's here where Paul sets out characteristics of widows who should be supported by the church. And this is the kind of support, uh, this kind of person who should get support, and it's these kinds of ideas. These are the activities of life. These are the patterns of life. If your patterns of thought are that my role as a mom is a part of God's redemptive plan, it's war. I need to embrace, I need to find peace in the gospel message to my children, to the nations, as a part of the church, God's bigger redemptive plan in light of King Jesus and his rule and dominion, then here's your battle plan. Here are the activities of life. No widow, Paul writes, should be placed on the official support list unless she's 60 years old, has been the wife of one husband, is well known for good works. That is, if she has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, helped the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. It's simple good works in the family that build the church. These are the patterns of life. Embrace the patterns of thought. These are the specific patterns of life. And you, mom, you can have great peace in embracing these and knowing that these are pseudo-militaristic endeavors. These are your battle plans from God as I do these. Love my husband, rear my children, look to the community, the church, and how I can help. That is how you will participate in God's plan. And that, that is where you, that is where you can have peace. Lord, I pray that you will minister to moms today in patterns of thought and patterns of life that they could enjoy peace in your broader redemptive plans. We ask this in Christ's name.